and welcome to Pop-Up Submissions Live. Today's theme is historical and literary fiction. Now, historical fiction is pretty easy to recognise and define, but literary fiction? Well, here's our 60-second explainer. The term literary fiction is, like art itself, very hard to define. Wikipedia says it describes novels that do not fit neatly into an established genre, which is a totally useless definition. While most literary fiction is not commercial, in as much as it doesn't sell many copies, the two are far from mutually exclusive. Think about writers such as Doris Lessing and Margaret Atwood, both of them literary writers and both very commercially successful. John Updike, no slouch himself in the literary stakes, professed a hatred for the term. I just sat out to write books, he said, and if anybody wants to read them, terrific, the more the merrier. I agree with Updike, let other people call your work literary if they want to, while you, meanwhile, get on with writing the most powerful prose you possibly can. Yeah, so that's my point of view, but maybe our guests today think differently. Let's have a rising welcome back for the fabulous Rose Morris. Oh yeah, how great to have her back and on the other side of the room for the first time on Pop-Ups. It's award-winning journalist and Latopian Matt Schofield. Yeah. Uh, second show of the month today, which means that we need to check in with the leaderboard. A very impressive start last week for Ella Mishne's The Reality Coder, MG fantasy about an 11-year-old girl who can hack the laws of physics. Yeah, so 74, 74, high school. That's the magic number that today's submissions are looking to beat. Let's look at the first one. Here we go. It's called Sonder. Do you like that title? I do. I like it. It's good. Sonder. It's literary fiction. That's one of the themes today. It's by John. There's a QR code there. You can go to John's website. I assume that's what it is. Um, and check it out. Meanwhile, I'm going to read you John's blurb. Rush to work. Rush home. Rinse and repeat. But if we paused for long enough to notice those around us that are caught in the same loop, what would we see? An unrecognisable glut of strangers or a reflection of our own unique complexities? Over the course of 33 morning and evening commutes, 17 people ponder their place in this daily whirling throng. Let me tell you about John. John says, I hold a BA ONS in media writing and have spent the past decade scribbling music criticism for a number of different publications, as well as writing copy for my day job at Resident Music, an independent record shop in Brighton. Home of creativity, really, Brighton. Uh, and I'm delighted to tell you, John, that we have a fabulous reading today from one of our very best narrators, who is Martin. Sonder by John, read by Martin. She remembered the two white-shod feet poking out from the far ends of the grey flannelled legs. She had seen them taking it in turns to pound the cold, cracked and occasionally damp concrete that bordered the residential roads of Edwiton. 
These streets lay on land previously owned by one family, the Earls, her family. From the pier, heading west past gardens and bowling greens to canoe cafes and yacht clubs, around the bend and over the grassy plain rumoured to hold magical bicycle riding qualities, although these stopped having any effect after the age of seven. Then stretching back to the line of churches, car showrooms, Asian takeaways and off-licences. This route, carrying on along longitudinal lines beyond banks, the whitewashed windows of ex-flower shops, downsized video stores and roundabouts littered with signs wishing Ruth a happy 41st birthday. And still we haven't tracked the perimeter. Around oak-lined avenues connecting rails to the sea we speed, flying over libraries and play parks along left zipping and right swinging curves, past public house fights on a Friday night and teary-eyed sighs at the end of shared lives, before bounding down through pedestrianised paths replete with charity shops that bear south, back towards the pier. All of this used to be fields before they drifted away like smoke on a breeze. And these were the streets upon which she had seen him plod each morning on her way to school. His running gait couldn't really be described as much more than a plod. Each foot was carefully placed, one following the other proceeding down the unforgiving pavement as if it was God's own timeline, his route marked out by a trickle of sand which was then stomped and worn down by believers thinking that they were earning diamonds. Through sleet and snow, Sylvia had seen him hurtling past, hurtling headlong past clumps of braying schoolchildren. She was certain that he heard their snickering and must have known that it was directed towards him. Maybe he was too naive to know the nature of their taunts, he never ran in hail though, only that one time when, clocked by a golf ball sized hailstone, the size had gradually increased from that of a pistachio nut over the years of telling the tale, See, Sylvia witnessed him veer wildly into an adjacent drive and upset a garden gnome, shearing its tiny gnome nose clean off. From the way that he avoided the glare from, from that disfigured gnome each morning, looking down what would have been its nose at him. It seemed that no amount of frozen precipitation was worthy of that obloquy. Sylvia imagined it hadn't always been that way. Maybe he hadn't always run in the morning, nor had he always avoided the accusative stare of diminutive bearded garden dwellers. Perhaps, she pondered, he had taken up this anti-meridium ritual in order to keep both his mind and body active. The most observant of those who knew him were able to put a precise date on when he started running, a date of schism. A final goodbyes and damp, hopeless eyes. Unfortunately, the most observant of his family and friends was a tortoise. But what did Sylvia know about him really? She didn't even know his name. They'd called him old Gus at school, but that was almost certainly not it. He would sport a grin as they cheered him on, travelling at a hair's breadth above walking pace. But there had been no sense of recognition that that was his actual name. Sylvia hadn't thought of him for over a decade. No one had brought him up. Why would they? She hadn't been walking those streets, certainly not at that early hour. He couldn't have been too upset by the taunts of schoolchildren, or he would have just run at a different time. It wasn't like he had anything else to do. But how could she know that? Did she have access to his calendar, a list of his whereabouts? She hadn't spared a thought for him for 10 years, so why would she now deign to know his movements?
not thinking of someone was akin to their memory dying. So, in all honesty, she was surprised to see that he was still alive. Okay, sorry about that, just um, doing a few tech things. Okay, so thank you very much, John, for that. I think we should go and have a look in the genius room straight away to see what they're saying and first of all i noted that lots of lots of people are very very positive about the title actually so uh, yeah it wasn't just me uh, people do like the title um then rg says blurb too dense says a lot one not saying much gladiel says i like the premise was there someone can't think of author who did something similar uh, about the underground yeah it's almost a trope I've, I've come across this kind of thing quite often actually um yeah more about that in a minute probably um james says don't know in the blurb who this is about 17 people yeah it's a lot isn't it uh johnny says he kind of sums sums up my feelings actually nice writing but not compelling uh, Vagabond says, ah, um, as these are shorter stories, perhaps too wordy, needs more story. And Hannah says, I'd like a first paragraph that hooked me into this particular character rather than just well-composed description. Um, uh, Eva says, are we to admire the writing or, or to be captured by the story, which is not much in the forefront? Um, and Terry says, sorry, I lost interest. I need a story or compelling character. I wonder if that's true of Ron's. Yes, I, I liked the blurb. And although it is a, a trope that we've seen before, and I'm trying to remember the name of the novel, I, I know which one you mean. It's about yeah. a lot of people in a tube carriage. Um, but I think there is scope to do this endlessly because the detail and the kinds of things the writer notices are what makes each journey, each book different. So there is definitely, I would quite happily read the book as described in the blurb. But I don't think this beginning works that well yet. There's quite a lot of quite awkward language. Um, and that's really not a good thing in literary fiction because the, um, the, with literary fiction, the, the quality of the words really guides the reader. It's, it's mm. got to be the most precise of mm. all of the genres if we are regarding literary as a category, a, a, a thing of its own. Um, and we've got things like, I was asking myself, how could a plain... Um, field have magical bike riding properties. The field doesn't ride the bike. Oh. Um, there are all sorts of moments like that. Um, and I was finding my attention was wandering, although yeah. I wanted to engage with it more because I like the idea of the setting that used to be something else, you know, a sense of what's been there before, a stranger who's seen a lot. All that's really good, but I think the writing isn't getting the best out of the material. Yeah, absolutely spot on, laser sharp, as always, Roz. What did you think there, Matt? Well, I think that um, starting with the um, starting with the blurb, I wasn't quite as happy with it as a number of other people were. I It reminded me very much of a 1980s Gideon cartoon, who's a cartoonist who's fallen much out of favor, but it, it shows a large crowd, and, it's, and the catch line is, um, it's exhausting to think about, but every day, every person every individual has a plan. Um, and I don't really know how you move on from that into captivating um, an audience for 17 different people. Oh, I do think you have to start with yeah. the most exciting of yeah. your stories because you're you're trying to hook them into your book, right? And this, 
isn't really a story at all. This is just somebody thinking about somebody that they may or may not have known at, at some point. I do think that, speaking to the writing, um, I'm not sure what the parentheticals add. I, yeah. Each time they kind of pulled me out of the story, yeah. and I'm not sure that's what you're looking for. Um, yeah. Okay, so... so um, 17 characters. I mean, what a challenge is that? I, I'm trying to get my head around that. I would like to know from both of you, please, writers both. Uh, how would you handle, you know, a manuscript or story with 17 characters? Um, is, is it doable? I think it is, depending on the skill of the writer. Um, uh -huh. If you look at something like John McGregor's Reservoir 13, he has a whole village of characters who okay. are gradually introduced. Their, their lives are changed by an, an event that happens. And you, you just sort of go along with it. You become curious in the, by, about the kinds of things that the writer notices. So yeah. as long as the writer's got enough variety and there's enough difference, I think, between all the various characters, you can do it. But it really depends on how well the writer does it. Yeah, and let me just start you on this, actually, because I, I was kind of puzzling out about this. How would you attack something like this? Does it depend, do you think, on a really strong authorial voice who sort of said, now let me introduce you to this person, but now there's someone else over there you need to meet? I mean, or can it actually exist purely on the, on the strength of the characters themselves and the author takes a background seat? You could do it either way you, you could either have a, a very present narrator who is guiding mm. you through everybody or you could have the narrator not be a personality of themselves in themselves you could just have whatever so-and-so was doing that day you could even try a number of different um sort of narrative voices but that might get very difficult with that many characters i did seven in my most Whoa. recent novel <laughs> and that was quite tough yeah. um, and yeah. to to do a lot is that that really is is asking yeah. quite a lot so of so I've got I, I got to follow through on that right because I, I know so often that when you know writers really get into it and they get into their characters the characters actually come alive the characters do come alive you may think this is a sign of mental illness it's not it's a sign of a writer doing their job and at three o'clock in the morning one of them will, will you know wake you up and say that stuff you wrote today about me that's not right what I would do is this you know it's, and it's, it's weird so did you have seven people knocking on your on your brain door i did and oh i had one God. of them who was saying you really are not being fair to me you despise me he said and i yeah. thought actually he's yeah. right and i yeah. haven't tried to see him from his real own point of view of what it was like to be him yeah, that, that, that happened a lot that's extraordinary you describe that to any psychologist and they'll they'll diagnose you but that's, that's, normal. <laughs> that's normal for a writer fabulous okay let's just see if we've got numbers in from Roz. yes looking good there we've got numbers in from Matt. yes we have indeed so we can have a look at the overall numbers so far remember the genius room uh genie either they are uh, can still continue to to vote uh, for minutes afterwards actually in raise the score john or lower it you've got a very very respectable 55 which i think is a damn good start to the show let's see what's next here we go submission number two i like its title too i'm just a sucker for good titles i like this all remains remembered think about it think about it all remains remembered mm. contemporary litfic it's from rob and this is rob's blurb all remains remembered tells the story of 16 year old 
Panda Hall, who we meet just before she kills an unidentified man in cold blood. The following narrative explains why she came to commit murder and how she plans to free her brother from a juvenile detention centre by the end of the night. These present-day events are interwoven with her own recollections, as well as those of her family and friends, of the tragic events that happened five years earlier and which set her on her current path. I'm all about Rob. I studied English Lit at University College London and have published numerous short stories, most recently on The Honest Ulsterman, under the pseudonym, oh, I'm going to give it, give it all away now, James Meares. Meares. Pronunciation guide sorely needed there, please. Meares, I think, Meares. Uh, I currently work in the senior civil service in London, and when, uh, when work and the children allow, I consume books, movies, and too much wine. Ah, typical writer. Um, what we've got is a far from typical, in fact, exceptional reading now from Hannah. All Remains Remembered by Rob Ward. Read by Hannah. In the half light of the room, her body looks out of focus the light golden sheen of her back, the fine, smooth sweep of hair, her lips thin and pale blushed, the curve of her spine tantalizingly just beneath the skin. She's beside me, so close and intimate, and yet she seems so far away. We make love, both of us for the first time, and then we dress and take our knives out into the cool evening air. Night has long since fallen on Hampton Bridge and the shadows have stretched themselves into a blanket of darkness. I can still taste her, but we have business to take care of. Several miles out of town, I pull off the road into woodlands and panda leads the way in darkness. We walk through the night entangled trees. Beyond the branches that loom above, the sky is clear to the stars and the heavens. There are no clouds to keep the land warm. There is a long night ahead. We walk on for several minutes until the building reveals itself to us. A wall of darkness, blacker than night. It rises immensely before us, like we've walked into a massive slumbering giant without even realizing. We move around it in silence until we reach a door, heavy and wooden, and as dark as the rest of the building. She leans down to the ancient block and pulls out a thin but complicated tool from the back of her top. She's about to push two prongs into the keyhole when she pauses. She pushes the handle and it glides down with surprising ease and the door swings open, already unlocked. It has been waiting for us. She steps through the door frame and disappears into the building. I take a deep breath, like I'm about to dive underwater, and I follow. The darkness inside is even more impenetrable, but as my eyes adjust, I can make out the wooden shelves that line the walls, covered with all manner of old items, bottles, buckets, a clock, several old pictures, some plastic bags bulging at the seams. The room must once have been used as a pantry or part of the kitchen. 
we carefully edge our way into the rest of the building. Wooden boards below us creak gently, like a warning, a nightingale floor. Before us, a hallway runs up to the inside of the front entrance. Ahead to the right, a large staircase twists round and disappears above our heads. The few contents we can see in the gloom, dismembered furniture, broken glass, discarded paper, and the battered, collapsed state of the walls suggest that no one has lived in the building for some time. We both stop at a muffled noise somewhere behind us. We realise at the same time that we left the door open. But before I can return, the heavy door slams with a startling crash, as if forced by a hidden, malevolent presence. It echoes all around and feels as if it will never end. But at last it does. I turn to her for reassurance, and after a few beats, just as I begin to think we're okay, a deep, sonorous voice comes from the heart of the darkness. I know you're there. We draw at our knives and my breath catches in my chest. We both look up as heavy footsteps pace around the floor above us, like a vengeful, unforgiving god, creaking the floorboards and making the walls groan. And the voice calls out again, if you're not coming to find me. It resonates around the distant walls, oppressive and languorous. Then I'm coming to find you. A huge blast erupts just a few meters along the hallway, impossibly close to us. We stumble to the ground. He has a shotgun, a fucking shotgun. I get to my feet, panting with fear, but she pushes me against the wall and with her head right next to mine, speaks with calm and steely resolve. Ben, let him come to us. She takes me by the hand and leads me quickly, silently, into one of the darkened rooms. Uh, ah, something bad's going to happen, I know it. Um, so let's look at what the genie is saying. They are of a, of a mind, actually. Um, so to begin with... Um, Blurb. Uh, blurb's promising, says Kate. I would have left it the first half. Uh, Vagabond says, Blurb could be a lot snappier. Long Blurb, says Hannah, but interesting. Uh, and Terry says, Blurb sets out an interesting premise, needs tightening. So there you go. I mean, absolutely spot on there. Um, RG says the same um, title. Eva likes that. Arises curiosity. Let's just look. Uh, nice play on words in the title, says James. Um, and Eva says, uh, seems to fit more into thriller genre. RG says, yeah, it feels like a thriller to me too. Getting a lot of description, says Annie. Not enough character. And, and Vagabond says, not getting literary from this, but okay. I'm not really getting literary from that either. And I'm not engaging as strongly as I, as I need to be. Did you engage hugely or not very much, Matt? I wanted to engage more than I did. I liked the mm. premise. I liked the idea. The, the I thought with the blurb, we actually a tale of two blurbs. The beginning of this blurb was quite interesting. And then it kind of dropped off into this, well, let me now tell you what I want to do with the blurb and this sort of thing. I'm not sure that was needed. Um, yeah. Uh, the work itself was, it should have had me riveted. I mean, this is, this is a, a, a young couple, apparently, brother and sister, I think, from the blurb, on, on their way out to commit murder. Yeah. And this is a very dramatic moment. It 
it stopped from being dramatic. I thought the writing was actually quite nice, but I'm not sure it served mm. the the pace that we were. Yeah. The pacing was off in this somehow. Yeah. Uh, Nicholas Cage will, of course, star in the movie. Um, actually, yeah. be a, you have to be younger, Nick Cage, wouldn't it? Really, actually, he's a bit old now, isn't he? Um, Roz. Well, I thought the blurb didn't sound very literary at all. It seemed to be aiming no. for the wrong kind of audience for literary. Uh, yeah. But maybe that's what the writer is more interested in. Um, and there's a danger sometimes that people think something is literary because it's it it does things that are a bit crazy or a bit unconventional. Yeah. But that doesn't make a literary book. What no. he seems most interested in here is you know that it's more of a crime novel or even yeah. sort of very dark young adult. Yeah. Um, I thought the writing was very graceful. The, the, well, the really was not an awkward sentence in the, the whole passage. I, I mm. enjoyed the writing. But I felt there was too much description, um, especially when they go into the house. Um, I didn't know why anything they were seeing mattered to them. Yeah. And that meant it was just a, there's a yeah. pantry here, there are some things there, it's a bit dark, shelves there, and it doesn't matter to them. Um, and yeah. I felt that they would be thinking, what could be on that shelf or just anything but we we would need to have a reaction and there wasn't any of that i did like it when we then heard the man upstairs calling out that was that was quite chilling but but again this this doesn't seem literary there's nothing wrong with it not being literary but i don't think that is where yeah um, Position. I don't think it should be either. I think I, so often it seems to me. Let's just, let's have a minute just discussion about that because we, we're going to have to talk about this sooner or, or later, actually. Um, and that is, I see so many. I mean, the vast majority of submissions that, that I see that call themselves literary fiction aren't literary fiction. And it seems to me that the, um, you know, the author sort of it's a sort of catch-all, really. They think oh, I'm not quite sure where it fits. It's literary fiction, and be done with yeah. it. Um, any advice to, to a, a poor writer in that situation? <laughs> well, I think I think there are grades. There there are books that have got a, a little bit of a literary element to them, but mm. they're mostly they mostly follow the tropes of a genre. And then there are, there are books that have the elements of a genre. For instance, a murder, but they're mm. not interested in most of the things that a conventional murder story would be interested in. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. You know, you might have a crime that's committed, but um, it, the book then doesn't go into any of the places that a normal crime novel would go. And mm. I think that's quite a good way of judging how literary something is. It's what the the writer is most interested in. Are they interested in pleasing a crime audience or are they interested in using the yeah. crime to explore something deeper about human nature or the, the yeah. being alive? Yeah. There you go, folks. Uh, you, you heard it first on pop-ups. is the Ros Morris literary ruler. Yes, that, that, that is, it's a way for judging how, how, how literary your work is. Amazing. Only on pop-ups. Uh, Stacey said something. Um, I didn't feel that visceral about this. I needed to feel visceral. But I, didn't, I didn't really. You know, I, you know, the, the guts were, were in a too solid state, all, all too corporal. Um, corporeal. Um, Stacey says, ooh, yeah, brother and sister made love. Is, I didn't pick that up at all from the manuscript. Did, did either of you? I didn't think it was brother and sister. I, I thought it was a couple. Was. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, yeah, I think it, from the, the the blurb was saying brother and sister, but mm. this is oh, it talks okay. about these two characters. So I think that's the assumption we go into this with. The opening Got scene it. is about them. Got it. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, Vagabond says Roz is giving good litopia today. 
Great. <laughs> Doesn't she always? I mean, that's that sort of backhanded compliment. Like, you know, last time she was. No, it always good Latopia for broads. Fantastic. Uh, let's look at the numbers. You got a 56. You're winning so far, Rob. You are in the lead, but it's a slender margin and it's all to play for with our next submission. Here we go, submission number three. And then I think, think we should catch up with Ross and see what's, what's going on in her world. Um, this is another a look at that title. Isn't that gorgeous? That just, I just, if that's, you know, if that's a pussycat, I would just spend all afternoon stroking that title. I love it. Vengeance in the Paling Light. Oh, yeah. Oh, gorgeous. Historical literary fiction. So it's not just literary fiction. It's not just historical. It's both today. And it's by Austin. And there's a QR code there, too. What more could you want? Well, maybe good blurb. Maybe this is it. In the feral lands of ancient Mesopotamia, hmm, a nameless boy escapes into the desert after a brutal slave revolt in the night. He wanders the cauterized waste in search of water, a city, a new life. But the chattel branding on his face forces him into the company of a war party bent on claiming the head of Ubara, the deified king of the Sumerians. Led by a monomaniacal, monomaniacal, I think, monomaniacal <laughs> figure who will stop at nothing to catch his prey. Their westward hunt becomes a parable of unmitigated pride and suffering. Wow. And I'll tell everybody about you, Austin, as a long-time enthusiast of philosophy. I love to crack open concepts and peer inside their gooey centres. Nice. Years of speaking and writing on theology have provided fascinating crossovers into the themes underlying this work. Big themes, big ideas, a big reading indeed from Lex. Vengeance in the Bailing Light by Austin Brown, read by Malice in Physical Form. The infant is naked and thin, a creature born of blood and made for the shedding of blood. The father holds him in the light of the fire, studying the child's face. He invokes obscure blessings from foreign gods, tattoos markings on the tiny heel. Outside lie dark, barren lands where black twisted trees hiss in the cruel winds. The mother writhes on the crude linens, clawing at the ground until the second child comes forth, lifeless and crimson in the pale light. The child's parents were once keepers of sheep, but have since become tillers of the ground laboring along the desolate landscape and against the darkening horizon, bent and plowing, the days each harder than before. Birds steal away their seed, digging with their beaks, their prying claws, and whatever green manages to rise is soon consumed by the cutting locusts. At the age of eight, the child's father leaves to hunt in the north, never to return. His mother draws up into silence. The child becomes it and in him broods another disorder where crumbling hearts lie in shadowed reefs, his eyes hollow, deep as the world's groaning soul. He works the ground with a crude pick, claws up rocks from the low hills, dust and wind under a wasting sky, the remote line of the horizon lost in a sulfur haze, the months grinding away in toil, in sweat, in thorns. One day he rises in the field to see the distant shapes of men on horses advancing along the wind-torn landscape far to the north. They ride slowly into their dry and withered crop, leering silently at the mother with her offspring. She stands defiant with a small pruning hook. 
The child thrashes while the man-stealers strip them of their clothes and bind them in wooden cages of terebinth and steal them away to a caravan of vagrants who prance their chattel in lines and grunt with pleasure while they make their bids. Two wineskins for the child. His mother and sister satisfy a debt between dark-skinned traders that laugh like hyenas. The night is filled with debaucherous mirth and drinking. A trapper with a missing ear grins at the child from the darkening edges of the flickering campfire. Wood smoke drifts into the chambered blackness beyond. Near early dawn, men with beards filled with colored beads depart with the child on camels freighted with goods. They press out into vast stretches of sun-bitten earth, where bundles of cactus tear up through the hard crust with thorns as long as fingers. At noon they stop, and the men eat dried meat, pluck burrs from their camels. Then they mount up again and ascend a lonely tableland saddled over a remote plain trembling with heat. They descend and trail across, specks on the spine of a sand-strewn wasteland. The child thirsts, but does not speak. This for days, until they edge near a precipice overlooking a city that rises out of the waste, like some terrible termite construction of mud and stone. He is acquired by a man with a crushed eye, who barters and skins and implements of war, and who oversees a pit where men fight against other men and beasts. The child's face is branded with a glowing iron, the charred lines drawn as if by a careless hand with a charcoal spike. The traitor lurches drunkenly by candlelight in the bedchamber, thinks himself a prophet. Embers pulse in the cooling hearth. The child rakes it to life, turns to listen as sparks curl to blackness. The promise of a seed foretold, the man mutters. Enmity in the viper's eye, biting the heel, crushing his head. Not so, I say. It shall not be so. The years pass with the child scooting blackened bowls of meat scraps into covered holes and cages filled with slaves from strange lands. He watches men fight like apes and maul for bitter life before raving crowds. He sees them win wiry women and intoxicating drink and death. He learns to amputate infected limbs, to mend and char the severed stumps with fire. A little cauterizing going on. <laughs> uh, let's see what the genii say. You're always right and have a wrong. Uh, RG says, <laughs> fantastic. That blurb, that blurb is stuffed like a Victorian armchair. And Vagabond says, yeah, slightly more prosaically, um, a lot to take in with that blurb, a bit much maybe. Um, yeah, ha Hannah says, blurb could be more truncated, didn't sound literary. Galadriel, like the title, blurb a little packed over. It was, wasn't it? I, I, as I was reading it, I felt I wanted to stop before the end, actually. Uh, too much telling, getting into the narrative uh, um, now, uh, too much telling, RG. Want a better idea? What these people think, how they feel, smell, want some names. And Johnny says, Lex could be a pundit on the end of the world coverage. <laughs> he certainly could, actually, <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Uh, Johnny, dramatic, packed with atmosphere. The prize that is, uh, I'm not engaging, says Barbara. Feels distant, and I agree with that. Um, and, oh, so much good stuff, actually, guys. More than I can pick out. If you are um, uh, watching the, the, you know, the recording of this, just freeze it now, freeze it now, just read everything that everyone is saying because it's good. It's good stuff. Roz, please. Yes, they are right, the Genius Room. Of course they are right. Oh, it's, it's right. It's quite uninvolving. Um, although it's, it's well-written, although the, the one or two slightly odd bits... Um, I mean, and who was the there's an I mentioned that suddenly someone says I I will not have this and who was that um, it felt a bit like a prologue 
Mm. And I was waiting for for the story to start with actual characters. Mm. And um, and I, I really hope that's what will happen next. Um, yeah. The details were good and bleak and well realised, but yeah, it just wasn't really engaging me. Yeah. Um, and I think yeah. it, it might be you might not need quite so much of that before going into a character doing something which is actually what the blurb seems to to promise the one final line in the blurb says um, it's a parable and um, that kind of adds the universality that is mm. often a feature of literary fiction which we haven't yet discussed uh, but um, there's a danger that sometimes writers then think they shouldn't get involved with the characters at all that they're just going to present a very um, almost biblical view of what goes on and uh, not get you involved um, and that that's quite a difficult kind of book to get into yes indeed it is and you've got lots and lots of comments here hopefully you can read them actually because there's a lot of, if you if you are um, a genii you know that this is the problem with geniuses their words come so fast they can't get them all out in time so if you just note that it does actually reduce the type um you know so where you're posting one comment and very small just make it two comments and that'll be much easier to read and you've got a very strong reaction here actually austin from your um your narrator lex he really likes it. Um, it's too it's it's too long for me to read. I'm afraid, but he he really really got into it. Really likes it, and I think it's it's true. I mean, I didn't engage as much as I wanted to either. But you know, often that's not actually lethal. You know, and the, the great sort of example of that, of course, would be uh, Lord of the Rings. What did you think, Matt? Yeah, it didn't read so much like a prologue to me as it read like author's notes. Um, um, here, are, these mm. are the bones of the story, um, and now I'm going to flesh them out. And instead of being fleshed out, what we were getting was the bones of the story. Yeah. So it run, it, it reads, I guess, like a, a synopsis. It's like then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Yeah. And I, I liked the writing, I liked the way that they were doing this, um, that the author was doing this. But I'm not sure that what, you know the the comment we're seeing again and again from Roz and from the genie room is the genius room is that we're not seeing uh, we're not engaging with anyone and there was no one mm. to engage with was yeah. there um yeah i mean as she said i hope very much that the the next chapter or the this is the first 700 words and at 701 it becomes a very different type of story but it doesn't feel like that it it also felt like very much lex was reading it and he has this wonderful voice for a a netflix into the world series <laughs> but this is just the, the the netflix announcer or the nexus is just going on and on and on and on it's almost a, a comedy trope at that point um there's yeah. too much of that kind of deep gravelly end of the world voice coming and yeah. i think we needed someone to root for at some point yeah absolutely and yeah. press your press your vote button please matt um, very pleased to say Jeff is uh, Jeff has arrived in the genius room as has Yana Puma actually yes you have been missed and great to have you have you back and uh, con contributing um, so let's yeah let's just see if the numbers have come through from you Matt and they have and we've got the numbers from Ross and we have that's fantastic this is the thing actually isn't it with um, I'm just looking at the bang column here that's the thing with you know with writing that starts out 
to be literary fiction. I mean, the commercial potential is always problematic, isn't it? That's a cute yeah. thing to say. Yes, you're right, Peter. Thank you very much. I am. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, and yet, it's what I must write. It's what I. It, yeah. It's what interests me about an idea. I don't want to follow the conventional path. I want to look for something that is yeah. speaking genuinely to me. And it often takes quite a long time to figure out what that should be as well. So it's something else that you see literary writers do. They say, oh, I've been writing my book for four years. Oh, and, yeah. and you might think they're being lazy or they're just sort of frittering the day away, going for walks and things. But no, there's a lot that's going on to make the book what it should be. Yeah, that's right. I like God knows how much they're getting paid per hour. <gasps> Fraction of pennies, you really. Negative. <laughs> Absolutely. you got a 49 so far, Austin, but uh, I've probably got a few more. Actually, we, you probably have got a few more to come in because we've um, we got a few more. Junior and I joined a little bit late today, actually, but better, better late than never. Um, so before we go look at our next submission, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to um, speak to both Matt and Ron's. <laughs> Because um, normally I, I just, I tell you what, let's have a look at Roz's uh, book at the moment. Then we'll come back and speak to both Matt and Roz. Lifeform 3, uh, fabulous reviews. Um, you got, uh, you you were shortlisted for uh, an amazing award. And it just goes on and on. And I, I just want to say the title is amazing. You've got the lifeform3.com domain. Um, when are we going to see the... Steven Spielberg movie. I mean, Lifeform 3 has got to be a movie, hasn't it? Probably sc screenplay either by you or if you don't feel like doing it, Martin Amos. Yeah, yeah, whoever wants yeah. to do it. So they just come and talk to me. Yeah. It All would right. make a. It, I think it would make a lovely movie. Um, I, it's, I, it's, I, I would go and see it. About the I would see it just on the title. I think it's a fantastic title. It's absolutely brilliant. You've got great reviews coming in. And Roz, just in case you don't know, although she is a regular here, you should know, but she does um, uh, consulting. She does sort of, she's a bit of a muse to other writers as well. And she does these advanced writing classes for the Guardian newspaper and so on. So I just thought very interesting to talk to Matt and Roz. And I'm going to not ask Roz any questions, but I'm going to ask Matt something. Because Matt is a distinguished award-winning journalist. Um, let me just tell you briefly. I mean, he's he's covered four wars in four war zones, which is pretty impressive. Once jailed on suspicion of being a runaway slave, which I, th I think there's a story there, but we may not get into that this time. We might do next time it comes on. And most recently, he's been working to rescue Afghan journalists. And he's now working on several books. So I've got a question for you, Matt. And this, this is not an unusual situation for a scribe such as yourself. Um, but I'd like to see if we can get into this a little bit with Roz. Because she, you know, she consults and she aids and assists. So you've written a huge amount of words over the years. I mean, millions, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. All, all of it journalism, all non-fiction of one form or another. You're now making the transition to writing long, long form fiction. What do you find to be the, you know, the main obstacles or the main challenges? Uh, the main obstacles that there's nobody sending you a check every yes. week. <laughs> <laughs> that's an obstacle. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's the primary obstacle. It, it, it's difficult because, you know, you're used to... Uh, it's patience. It's the patience in writing. You are used to writing something, passing it off to an editor very quickly, mm -hmm. having them fix it 
for you, give yeah. them their suggestions how to fix it better, and then it's you know in the newspaper in the old yeah. days or online today. Although the reality in uh, the modern journalism world is it's uh, it's online before anyone's actually an editor's actually looked at it. It's just a very yeah. very quick process. It's one two three and it's up. Yeah. If you hit the wrong button, it's up before you're done writing it. Um, yeah. So yeah, this is the the difficulty is in pulling yourself back from that um, constant production. You know, I write, I've been writing every day for 35 years. Um, this is just what I do. Now I'm writing every day, but I'm, I'm progressing very slowly. Now I did some long form journalism. A lot of the stuff I did was 10 day series and seven day series and things like this, where they, you'd have 11,000 words in the, in the final piece. Um, I think one was 18,000 words, wow. but, um, it's still not the same because I had yeah. constant editing, constant feedback, constant, you know, it, when I start to yeah. veer off into something, a place shouldn't be going, there's someone telling me no. And now that's just me. Yeah. You know, okay. I'm the editor. So and, there you go, so. Ross. First, first, first challenge. Any, any good advice on that? Um, yeah, you just have to keep going and you'll find that your vision for the book probably changes as you see more possibilities. Something that's quite tricky if you're writing a book based on actual experiences is to let go of those to an extent and to invent things. Uh, but once you, once you think, oh, I can just use the actual events as a, a trigger for something that I will then create, then that makes things a lot easier. Um, I'm I'm having a, an interesting time at the moment because I'm um, working on this, there were some diaries that my father left, and I, they had all sorts of stuff in them that I didn't know about, and it's a fantastic story. And I'm thinking, I want to try and make a novel out of this, but I have to somehow let go of what I know is 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 interesting about it because it, it concerns things that happened to me and to my family and try and create things out of the same themes and actions and human urges that will make the best of it for a reader who isn't me mm -hmm. yeah. i don't know if that makes sense but you you have to actually kind of step away from the personal angle of uh, and the actual literal truth of what happened in order to find a truth that will be more resonant and universal for people who aren't you what about this thing called voice um because uh, it's my understanding correct me if i'm wrong actually Matt. it's my understanding that journalists generally are not encouraged to develop voice unless they're columnists or something like that but you know it's 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 reporting it's it's, it's getting things in context getting information over and i suddenly with you know fiction writing voice is really important is that is that a challenge for you um, it is it is a challenge, but uh, there is a there's an area of journalism that I, I worked in for quite a long while called um, narrative nonfiction, um, narrative um, narrative serial journalism, um, in which you have some really wonderful voices emerging from Mark Bowden, um, whose most famous book is Black Hawk Down, hmm. um, but also the Killing yeah. Pablo and things like this, and you have a number yeah. of people like that. This is the area I was working in, so we were encouraged to learn voice. Um, to, to, to establish a voice at some level. Hmm. But, uh, you know, Roz's point is, is excellent. There's a great, I don't know if you've read The, the Things They Carry by Tim O'Brien, but there's a great um, take on that where he talks about the true, the true war story cannot be factually correct. 
Yeah. Because the true war story has to speak to something much greater than the actual event that just happened. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 Hemingway. Hemingway. Really. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Thank There's you, guys. Point. There's another point yep. about um, writing and voice and journalism. Um, when I've worked with journalists, I've often found that they're quite reluctant to let a scene play out. Um, they will actually start with the, the usual news story idea or, or feature writing idea, front loading an idea so that they'll say, um, he seems quite relaxed about the predicament he's in. Now, they will start with that and then they'll write a few lines to justify this which is what you would do in an article but in a, a work of fiction you would actually create a scene that created that feeling where that emerged and the reader made the conclusion the writer doesn't give you the conclusion that, mm. that's something that i found journalists do a lot yeah. well we used to have a saying in journalism um uh, nothing nothing ruins a good story like facts yeah. um, and that's the beauty <laughs> That's the beauty of, of fiction. The the facts don't ruin the the story. You you go where the story should take you. You go where it naturally should. But yeah. it's a process. Learning how to do this is a process. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've certainly fascinated the genius room, both of you, there, with your observations and wisdom. Thank you very much for that. But I've got to get you to do a little bit more work now because we have two more submissions. This is submission number four. And it's literary fiction. It's from Patrick. Uh, Patricia, sorry. Thank you very much, Patricia, for sending us this. We've got a QR code there too, to Patricia's website. It's called The Colour 50. The Colour 50. Do I like that title? Yes, I do. I liked all the titles today. Suck on the titles. Um, this is Patricia's blurb. In April 2010, ash from an Icelandic volcano spreads across European skies, closing airspace. I remember that. Everyone watching will remember that. That's a sort of shared experience. What a good idea. They, I tell you, the air in London was so pure for days or a week or two. Hamilton, a broken, bitter lawyer, is married to Stella, who blames him for the death of their only child. Their lifelong friend Billy is a recluse, having walked out on a brilliant career as a human rights lawyer in Hamilton's firm. At 50, all of them feel stuck in the past, but this remarkable weather event gives them an unexpected opportunity to reshape their future. And all about Patricia. I'm living in Ireland and work as a psychologist. I've written two books on mental health topics and a children's book. I've also had several short stories published. I have an MA in writing from National University of Ireland, Galway. And this is the finest reading we can deliver you from Robert. The Colour 50 by Patricia, read by Robert. Chapter 1. Hamilton. The hilltop town of Tawamina flaunted its sadness like a widow, undermining Hamilton's effort to choose an entree from the menu. The church facades looked especially dreary, looming over the piazza in the fading light. Even the waiters, with slick back hair, adjusted their crisp white tablecloths with funereal gravity. None of that would have mattered a jot, if not for Stella. Whereas to him, it was all a bit too death in Venice. There was no doubt in Hamilton's mind that Stella would have lapped up Tawamina like a puppy. Whenever they went on holidays, she inevitably sniffed out some dirge-like Gothic cathedral, and that would derail the plan for the day. 
The conference organizers had even laid on morning yoga for partners, and Stella adored yoga. Hamilton put down his menu as his heart tumbled into the familiar swamplands of guilt and regret. The conference group had chosen well with the outside table in the main piazza. The almond wine was cool and only slightly sweet. It all tasted a little sweet. The small tomatoes, his bread roll drenched in olive oil. Everything was poised, waiting for the evening to begin. The brass band on the opposite side of the square began to belt out their opening number, Valère, and when they burst into the chorus, a woman at a nearby table joined in. Valère, she sang, her smoky voice echoing across the square. She conducted proceedings in the effortless fashion of an extrovert, and everyone in a little party joined in. What a clever place to have a conference, don't you think? Mira said, edging her chair closer to his. Ever since the first evening when she had entertained the conference audience with her highly amusing tongue-in-cheek presentation on how to make partner in one of the big five firms, he had admired her from afar. She had managed to be cynical, but with enough humour not to seem bitter, lacking that hard-edged, humourless approach that so many female colleagues adopted. He had noticed her languid movements and how her hips swayed as she left the podium, a seductive smile playing on her full lips, so he was flattered when she plonked herself beside him in the restaurant. The conference had been a flaccid affair, but it wasn't just the conference. Although he usually kept up an almost ceaseless diatribe about the dampness of his native city, a few balmy Sicilian days left him fretful and longing for the fresh spring breeze as he took his daily walk to work in Cork. He wanted home and the lazy slouch of the River Lee as it headed towards the harbour. He longed for the feel of the kitchen tiles underfoot in the morning, warmed by the eager. More than once he found himself thinking of cuddling Stella after he delivered his paper. He should have pleaded work commitments, changed his flight and slithered away. He would not have been missed. And yet, Watching Mira's sandal bob up and down in time with the drums, he sensed that all might not be lost after all. The morose mood of a few moments before slipped away. He was wearing his pale blue linen jacket, his favourite. He had recently begun to use a moisturiser, studiously ignoring Stella's guffaws, and it had done wonders for his skin. He sipped his wine with the faintest thrum of excitement, as Mira began talking animatedly to the confident, urbane Australian couple, their appearance evidently belying their years. The woman, Joanna, was a lawyer. It was a second marriage for both. I'm always telling him to slow down, Joanna was saying to Mira, reaching for her husband's hand. She looked rudely healthy and exuded a quiet, self-contained confidence as she spoke. Anyway, I decided to retire at 57, she shrugged. I've had a successful career, worked all my life. I wanted to enjoy these years together, she said, smiling at her husband. She was blonde, sleekly groomed, and clearly very much in love. We go to Europe together, once a year for a couple of months. Oh, how very nice, actually, yes. Um, so, I was smouldering, but I wasn't quite igniting. Let's see what the genii were doing. Uh, great title, lots and lots of people like the title. Lots of people like the title. Yana says, good opening line. Um, not a fan of the first line. Several people pick uh, pick on that, actually. Yana likes it. Several people don't. 
Um, and then Annie, Annie's not a fan of the first paragraph. Too much backstory, she says. Might be better to stick with, the Ham with what Hamilton is currently doing. And Stacey, some of the words seem out of place. Plonked. I, I notice that too. For someone with a seductive smile. That's right. It's just you might have a large derriere, doesn't it? Hey, what? Plonking it around? Um, RG says, smooth writing, uh, though jumps between thoughts and places too much for me to follow properly. RG also says, does read a bit showy-offy. You had me at the start, says Vagabond. But it's meandering around a bit too much now. Mm, yeah, I, I feel that too, Roz. Yes, I love the premise. I mm. thought that's great. Um, and and then the um, the actual text doesn't seem to be going that way at all. Um, and in fact, I couldn't really figure out where it was going. We seem to be just watching this guy watching a few people it mm. seemed a bit aimless i i think it's not the right place to start um it, since you've got the volcano which is this wonderfully concentrated period of time wh where you could do extraordinary things and upend people's lives in in really interesting ways i would start with that moment and then fill in whatever you need to for context afterwards um, I was also a bit puzzled by the title. The title, I mean, it's clever, but it seems to be more like Chicklet. And um, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't really go with, <laughs> yeah. with this. Um, yeah. you, you want something about volcanoes or, you know, ash or ashes. Something. Yes, yeah, exactly. Or eruptions. Yes, <laughs> that, that might be a bit of a disaster movie. But <laughs> I, I think there's some things that aren't really gelling yet. But yeah. I love the premise. I think this would be a really interesting set of circumstances to yeah. read about. This is what atmosphere of bored sensuality to begin with. I thought I thought it was promising, but I, I, need, I need a bit of a twist. I need that knife to twist a bit. Um, otherwise, I'd probably look at the next submission. What did you think, Matt? I really liked the writing. I thought it was mm. a great tone. I, um, part of it was the reading was excellent. But yeah. it, it, it was a... Um, it was a, it was kind of a, a nice smooth look at this, but I'm not sure where it was taking us. The story seemed to be lacking somewhat, and they didn't really seem to be sure exactly what they wanted us to take from this opening. Yeah, um, and that, of course, in, in the end, that makes it a little less difficult to enjoy. I, yeah. I I very much liked it for the first half, and then I found myself saying, "Okay, but but why?" Hmm. Um, and you don't want to be saying that in the first 700, 700 words, do you, really? You, you yeah, want to be sort no. of fully locked and loaded and engaged. Right. Yeah. And I yeah, wanted this to excite me and make me want to read the next 700. And I'm not sure I keep, yeah. I'm not sure I don't just put the book back on the shelf at this point. Yeah. And um, I mean, let's ask you, because um, Roz has expressed her view. I mean, do you think this is literary fiction or is it misgenred? Well, I don't know what other genre it would go into. So, you, you know, your notion that literary fiction is frequently used when you don't know what genre to, to use mm. um, kind of applies here because it, it didn't feel particularly literary, but it didn't feel thrillerish. Um, it didn't feel romance. It didn't romance. It didn't feel um, uh, it wasn't a crime story that I can tell. Maybe there's a very big twist coming at word 701 on yeah so i don't know i you know <laughs> yeah. so, sorry i was thinking that if it could actually just be contemporary fiction 
even though yeah. it's set about 10 years ago, yeah. um, it, it doesn't seem to me to have the kind of interest and resonance that literary often has. You know, and th this is where you get into deep water by claiming literary's got a, got a bit of a sort of superior aspect to it because mm. it's, it deals with something a, a bit universal, a bit, a bit resonant. And I don't feel that coming through the text. I think it sounds, from the premise, like a perfectly yeah. good contemporary story it comes through the blurb but it doesn't come through the text yeah and uh i i, I mean I, I love anything like that that's got you know shared experience because we kind of yeah is i i know i lived through that I wonder if your experience is the same as mine that's great i love it you know nine eleven stories and all the rest of it but um it's that isn't my lifestyle now just you mentioned this i didn't mention it ros morris you said chiclet mm -hmm. we don't use that, that expression here we use women's fiction Are you no, oh. no. But but since you brought it up, I mean, if you were giving advice to Patricia, would you move it more that way? Well, her narrator's male, so that really isn't going uh, to hit the okay. same buttons. And presumably the readers want the same things, regardless of what they're calling it. Yeah, they do. Uh, yes, <laughs> basically. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, let's just summarise. What is our advice to Patricia with this? Uh, different title. Um, yeah. The Colour 50 is a good title, but it's not for that book. I see it in ribbon writing, actually. Mm. Um, okay. Yeah. And, um, the, and start it in a more condensed way. Um, use that wonderful con condensed time you know, when the world completely changed and people's yeah. lives were just put on hold or thrown off course and they were made to do unusual things use that as yeah. the the end papers of the of your book and yeah. uh, just write it within that time great, great advice absolutely great advice uh, galadriel says i think rise is offering some thought-provoking insights into writing as she always does actually and uh, let's just check matt have you punched the numbers and you have fantastic thank you very much you loved the blurb didn't you you like i like the that's i did i very much like the blurb been the case several times i love though. volcanoes so it's like if you put a penguin oh or, my God. or a volcano in the blurb i'm going to be very happy that's because you're, so, you're a journalist that's why yeah, yeah penguins uh, uh, in a, on, you know running around in a volcano that's my jam total bliss total bliss <laughs> yeah nice and uh, you got a 58 patricia oh, i hope you're happy with that you should be it's pretty good score pretty good but we now should look at the overall score because we've only got one, one more submission so let's see what the numbers look like Actually, Patricia, by a, a, a short nose, I mean, nothing personal, you may have a, an elegant sort of equine nose, I don't know, probably best not even to talk about your nose. But anyway, you are, you are ahead there, 58, but we do have one more submission. And this is it. Now, I've got a pronunciation guide here, thank heavens. Otherwise, you know, I can mangle things, I can distort things and decapitate verbs. Um, this is Hannah Laura. Thank you for the pronunciation guide, Dan. Appreciate that a lot. If you are sending something in, please do make sure you uh, you you add pronunciation guides too. Also, uh, if you want to gender something um, appropriately, make sure I know about that too. Uh, it's from Dan. It's historical fiction this time. All right, it's not literary. It's historical fiction. Fine, we understand. We've changed our mindset, especially for you. For you, and this is the blurb. It's January 1945. Hannah Laura. Pronounced Hannah Laura is both the name of the novel and the main protagonist. 
a large part of which is seen through her shining hazel eyes. She is a gifted, precocious six-year-old. She is strong from walking the nearby mountains to pick berries and mushrooms with her mother, Ermgard Hutch. They begin their 400-plus kilometre flight on foot, hitching a lift whenever possible. The mantra is, the Russians are coming. Death stalks them. During their odyssey, they meet two emaciated, dying Jewish escapees from the Gross-Rosen concentration camp. Soviet soldiers are massacring all the Germans they find, mostly women and children. They meet a family of Laleri gypsies, a, a man of Southwest African heritage, and plenty more on this fateful and, for many, fatal stampede to survive. Those who did survive are now falling silent as time marches on. And um, this is a little bit long. I'm going to read it all um, because it's uh, very interesting. I'm a university lecturer where I teach world history, international culture, creative writing, and German. I am half German. My mother was born in Breslau, Germany, which is now Poland. The story is very loosely based on her story. She described that part of her childhood in a single syllable, pain. She died in December 2021 and took her story with her. I believe that the subject of my novel is a potentially controversial topic because throughout the world and focus, uh, the focus has always understandably been on the Holocaust and other Nazi atrocities. The fact that the Allies also committed a war crime has arguably been brushed under the carpet. However, this novel is not an apologia, apologia. It took many months of research and rewrites to make this a historically accurate piece. The ethnic cleansing of between 13 and 15 million Germans, the largest in recorded human history, is that correct? Um, I'm thinking the sort of league table, table of atrocities, I'm not sure that's right. It's barely mentioned in school textbooks. Sometimes it's omitted entirely. The city Breslau, where my mother was born, has been part of Germany for over 700 years. I originally called this novel Imaginary Lines, alluding to the lines our parents tell us not to cross, and also the arbitrariness of nations' borders. However, a writing friend Tommy, Hannah Laura, was better. I'm intrigued as to what you and your genii, thank you for mentioning, you and your genii think. Well, we'll find out in just a moment after this fabulous, fabulous reading from Barbara. Hanelore by Dan Auckland, read by Barbara. As was his custom, her cruts shaved meticulously that morning. He was in his late seventies, but every morning he spent three quarters of an hour shaving and dressing. He used tweezers to pluck out nose and ear hair. He wasn't a vain man, but thought appearances set out an important signal. And anyway, it had been his routine since he had acquired facial hair and a razor. Why break a good habit? He and his wife were the first on their street to have an indoor WC. Personal hygiene was a value he held in high esteem. He went downstairs and solemnly announced his morning soliloquy. Another glorious day on planet Earth. One of his other customs was to be a little theatrical. The theatre had been one of his loves from a young age. Later that day, Herr Kratz and his wife were sitting down for lunch. She had prepared lamb chops, potatoes and kohlrabi, Gunther's favourite vegetable. Zenta, a neighbour's dog, sat at his feet. Her ears were up. She was alerting them to something. But what? Then they heard the muffled sound of an engine. Then pounding on doors and smashing of glass, they were the only inhabitants left on their side of the street. Everyone else had fled west. Then there was a heavy bang on their own door. Gunther looked at his wife. Fortune rarely accompanies anyone to the door, her crutz said to her. Goethe? 
she asked. Yes, my love, he replied. He rose from his seat, steadied himself and called out. Who's there? Open the door or we'll break it down, came the answer in Ukrainian. Wait a moment, he said, speaking Russian. As he walked to the door, Zenta slinked to the back of the kitchen. Gunter repeated the line, this time in Polish. He opened the door. In front of him were three uniformed, but quite disheveled-looking soldiers. How can I help? Gunter calmly asked. His right leg was quivering. You're German, right? Where is everyone else? said the tallest of the soldiers. As he did so, another soldier unceremoniously brushed past Gunter into the house. I speak German, Polish and Russian. I have lived here for nearly 30 years. If you would like... He was interrupted. I don't care if you were born in this bloody house, snapped the soldier. Gunter caught the unmistakable odour of hard liquor on the man's breath. The soldier inside the house called out, There are hundreds of books in here, almost all in German. This place is like a library. I also have to report an old fat sow of a woman. Even Sergei wouldn't touch this one this so early in the day. Not even with yours, General Kostya. Sergei was outside, heard what was said and shouted back that you could keep her then. The taller soldier, who seemed to be in charge, laughed. Bring her out, he ordered. As she was brought out, Gunther reached and squeezed his wife's hand. Then they were pushed against the wall at the front of the house. Please, comrade, we were about to eat. You can eat our food if you're hungry, or we can make some more for your men, Gunther said calmly. You know what they say, lads, exclaimed the speaker. The German may be a good fellow, but it's better to hang him just the same. With that final utterance, the soldier withdrew his pistol and offloaded one bullet into Gunther's head and another into his wife's. At the back of the house, Senta pushed open the back door with her snout, kept it close to the ground as if on the hunt, and purposely finding her way to the end of the garden, slipped through an opening and ran, now full speed, to the tree line. There was something glorious about the manner in which they died. There were no theatrics, no wailing just tacit understanding that their lot was up. To an outside observer it may have looked as though they were cowardly in offering no resistance, no fight, but they had lived a good, full, mostly happy life together. They died with the dignity. The year was 1945, the month was March. And I think we should go straight to the GDI to see uh, what they are saying, as you wanted actually, Dan. Um, so Blurblong um, says James Galadriel says think um, Hannah Lore sounds more interesting which is how I read it yeah yeah I know I'm still kind of stumbling over that actually which could be a good thing or maybe not such a good thing Annie says content sounds interesting the blurb is a little hard to read it was actually um, Yana says should a name be used that's difficult to pronounce in a title very good question um, uh, not one easy answer to that. Galadriel, don't like through her shining eyes. Unnecessary for a blurb which needs reshaping. Raji says, too much on the blurb. Pick a, pick a key hook um, and focus on that. And Hannah says, more of a synopsis than, than a blurb, which is so often the case with the blurbs that we see here. There is a seminar on blurbs if you want to look at that inside the colony. Um, Love the title, says Jan, and the premise grabs me. Opening power needs a trim, says RG. Annie, why we're not starting, and this is, several people have said that, why we're not starting with our, our protagonist. 
Um, and James has noticed nose hairs, <laughs> which again is a separate discussion that we're not going to have at the moment. Um, is going to a Nazi, says Annie. Um, probably not, actually, as things turned out. Um, I like the last paragraph, says Annie. Start there. Engaging writing, says Eva, but is it enough to brush away historical views? And just amazing comments. I'd like to go to, to Matt first, please. First reactions. Well, I've actually been writing about this topic for the last 20 years, so uh, I'm quite familiar with it. it there was a, there's quite a movement involving um, the, the German victimization, the mass number of rapes that were, um, that, that were committed in the, after the fall of the Third Reich. Um, there is talk about the bombing of Dresden, the firebombing yeah. of Dresden, and how Germans did actually suffer in this, and this is not discussed, and it should be. Um, so I, I, I'm quite familiar with the argument, and uh, I understand where this is coming from in that sense. I'm not sure I necessarily bought it, but I, I got it. Um, I thought with the blurb, I was going to mention what you just mentioned, Peter, that if only there was a video online somewhere that would describe exactly what a blurb is, I think that would have helped this blurb quite a bit. Um, because this wasn't, a, this wasn't a blurb, and so it's hard to give it a very good score, which is yeah. um, for me. Uh, and I thought that the story is telling, I'm not sure where we're going with this. Now, I, I get the sense that we're gonna flash back and then tell their lives that lead up to this death. Yeah, well, yeah, possibly. I hadn't thought about that, yeah, yeah. Um, if not, I don't, if that's not where we're going, I'm really not sure why we're um, looking at this couple die and how we're yeah. looking at this couple die. I'm also yeah. really not sure why the dog becomes the focus at the end. But um, yeah. I, 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 I thought the writing was, was well done. Um, so, hmm. well done on that. Okay, so uh, blurb not interesting says uh, Mation, not uh, our Matt, uh, at least Matt on screen here. Uh, but story very engaging. Would read on, um, and Stacey says, "Hmm, so they're German at the end of World War Two. Many of us are wondering if they were Nazis. Yeah, we can't sympathise well until we know. At least I'm wondering," says Stacey. Single yet brutal opening, very effective, says Terry. I don't know if you find it so effective, Ross. I think it needs trimming a bit. I think uh, the material is terrific and his understanding of the the whole situation will enable him to, to write a great book. Um, but I was finding some of the um, some of the writing was actually overdoing it. It was um, we had dialogue tags that um, you know, like exclaimed. You don't really need mm. that when the material. Let the material just speak for itself. Let the events and the things people do speak for themselves. Uh, you don't need to say someone exclaimed something. Um, yeah. You also don't need adverbs when you when you talk about how people said things. They, they just said it, and the situation is enough. Um, and you had some lovely details, like um, talking to the German and his right leg was quivering. This that was oh, that yeah. really showed the, the 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 fear. This is show not tell at its best. This is someone mm. not saying that he was afraid. He was trying to be brave. This was showing him speaking calmly, and his leg was quivering. That hmm. says it all. That's great. Um, the, the blurb, yes, I, I found it a bit, a bit of an information dump, really, and it didn't tantalise very much. With the blurb, you really need to draw people in and give questions. How hmm. will this happen? 
what will they do? Um, those kinds of elements were missing from the blurb. And I yeah. thought that the, the title was not very memorable. Um, and that's a problem, because when you're trying to remember what this book is called, you yeah. think, what was it called? Um, yeah. uh, Hannah? Yeah. Um, it's, it's something yeah, about Germans. Yeah, you, exactly. You need... His his original idea was more along the, the the right lines, if you will forgive the sort of pun. Well, there you go, Dan. Lines. We've totally confused you on that, but I, I, I my <laughs> my vote would actually go with Roz on that. I think that's right. I think it's it's a bit of a problematic title. There's several people did like it in in the genius room, but there, you know, I, I do challenge you to wake up tomorrow morning and remember it, or even to go into a bookshop and ask for it. That might be difficult. Um, like, I just want to talk about this thing for a moment that Matt mentioned because I hadn't actually thought. That that might be a possibility, Matt. Um, that we might be then going into, you know, the Baxter one, the the whole prequel, really. I mean, what I assumed, and I, I really didn't like actually, for reasons I'll explain in a moment, was that these are just two straw characters, right? Just just put there for us to somewhat empathise with, and then they get brutalised, and it's just, you know, just to to show us and sort of. The thing is, it didn't really, it didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I, it's a dreadful thing to admit, okay, but I'm going to do this live on YouTube. I didn't feel that brutalised by it. I think there's so much ghastly stuff around us now in the news and everywhere, every day. I mean, God knows contemporary relevance of this. Um, it just, I just thought, I, I don't really care about those two people. You know, they've made unpleasant ends, but there we go. Apparently they led good lives. And I, I, my suspicion is they were just there to show that brutal things happened, that they were straw characters, they were ciphers in a way. I don't know if that's the case. What do you think, Ross? Yes, I wondered about that. Um, yeah. I was thinking that it would be interesting if there was a child who was watching it and the, the child yeah. ran away having witnessed that, because then that would be a link to what we we have experienced watching that happen to those people. Yeah, it would be something, wouldn't it? That would add a completely different right. dimension to it. This left open the possibility that the dog was going to narrate the rest of the story. Um, oh. <laughs> it's true, actually. It. I hope not. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay. But I, I, I do think that this is something we have to... I mean, this notion of literature in Germany is quite popular. It's, 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 there's actually a very literary sense that can be imposed upon this story. It, it's... I know it says it's just historical fiction, right? Yeah, but yeah. this is this has this has a great deal of literary potential because mm. the themes behind this are quite deep and quite interesting. And really, mm. it, it takes a while to dis, to discuss what is going on here. Yeah, you know, yeah, um, absolutely. That, that said, yeah. if these are straw characters and we're just supposed to think, oh well, these people were murdered and they were nice people and they were just having yeah. dinner, I'm not sure that serves the point of the book very well these yeah. people have nothing to do with the rest of the book well we don't actually know so, of course do we i don't know if you're watching us live on youtube now dan but if you are you can you can make a comment on youtube and we'll push it put it on the screen we'd really like to know that um but you know, in my years of, of writing on this i would go off and um I, I i interviewed a couple dozen former nazis who had defended berlin in the battle of berlin they were at the time 13 14 year old boys um who were given weapons and sent out into the streets very very firm believers um absolute 100 percent hitlerians you know they, they believed hitler was right and nothing nothing mattered if hitler was dead yeah um and it, it was um and this these stories were kind of this 
it was this movement of telling the German stories of suffering as well. The sheer mm-hmm. number of women who were raped is something like three and a half million, I think, um, in the in the first like year and a half or something like that. It was just an enormous problem. Um, so it, I, it, I never there are that. issues to be mined here. Yeah, um, definitely. Very much so. Yes, absolutely. So uh, we want to be encouraging and supportive. Let's look at the overall numbers here. You are 38. I don't think that's... Oh, Agent Pete hasn't voted. Has he? <laughs> I think he has. Oh, my God. What's, what's going on there, actually? Now, that is not good, actually, guys. We have got an issue on there. Right. I don't know why. There we go. I think... I think I've corrected it. It's it's all live. We're living on the bleeding edge of technology. We are waiting with bated breath. And there you go. You got a 51. <laughs> you got a 51, Dan. So um, I hope you find that very useful. And uh, I think I think it's fair to say, Matt, you would encourage Dan with this, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would. I think that it, there's space here to... There's Good. space here for a movie, for a book that does very well for a movie that comes out of this. Um, Absolutely. At least in yes. Germany, there's space. Yeah. It's actually, yeah. Um, I guess we just, I just watched this the other day, the the movie about the little boy whose best friend is Hitler, the imaginary friend is Hitler. I can't remember. Mm. Mm. Um, but, yeah. <sighs> no, I Good. Didn't. Sorry, right. it's gone. That's that's all right. Thank you very much, Matt. That's no, terrific. I wasn't I mean, about that. Yeah, and isn't it isn't it isn't it wonderful? Actually, it happens so often. Actually, so often on pop-ups. George so, Rabbit. Was oh um, no, it wasn't wasn't when Hitler stole Pink Rabbit, was it? No, Jojo Rabbit. Oh, jo- yeah, that's that right. Was right. Of course. Yeah, Jojo, that's oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think I was just so lucky to have you on the show today, Matt, actually. And I know it's kind of coincidence because you, you, you very kindly offered to fill the shoes of Ed, who who would have been on today, but he's got the, the plague, and we send, send it our, our very best wishes for rapid recovery. But how great oh. that you are on today, and the submission came in. Isn't that brilliant? I love it that things happen like that. Let's look at the numbers. And it's final. Here we are. It's um, it's it's all tightly bunched today. Very interesting submissions from absolutely everybody. Thank you, everybody, for 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 doing that. But it does appear we actually do have one very clear winner. Congratulations, Patricia. Some people love the title. Some people don't. I hope you found it useful. 58 is a good score. And what else has been good is, well, um, just good company, actually. Really enjoyed the company of everybody today. Obviously, Roz. Obviously, Matt. Very much so the genie in the genius room. How wonderful to be able to have people like that all around you from all over the world, virtual community that we are, and they contribute so, so much of their understanding and knowledge and just freely give to other writers i think it's the best thing in the world i'm so impressed i'm also impressed with everyone who works behind the scenes to get this show on the road because it does take a lot of people you know who you are and hopefully you will also know please to join us same time live next sunday on youtube see you then hit it